Welcome to Photo Geek Weekly, episode 99, recorded on March 12th of 2020. Uh, we like to geek out uh, about the photographic news, uh, new camera announcements, ethics, uh, legalities, and how the industry is constantly evolving. I'm your host, Don Kamarechka, and with me is always a guest host that usually changes up, and uh, this person is no stranger to the podcast, and I'm no stranger to his either. Uh, with me today from the Photo Taco podcast is Jeff Harmon. Jeff, how are you doing? Good, good. I'm glad to be here. I'm no Steve Brazel. You guys have quite the relationship built up now. but <laughs> <laughs> Well, we, we, we have a good like uh, on-voice chemistry, you I do, suppose. You Steve's do, you do, for sure. But, uh, but you can geek out pretty good about the stuff that, uh, that we bring up on the news cycle, and it's always great to have you on and uh, to hear your opinions. Great. Glad. So what, what's, what's new and exciting with you? Well, I'm in the middle of doing a ton of testing. I'm actually always in the middle of doing a ton of testing. <laughs> but, Aren't we all? But uh, I just finished up, like last month, I did a bunch of testing on external storage and the impact, uh, the performance impact with Lightroom. And uh, this month for my Photo Taco episode, I'm, I'm comparing the uh, new Denoise AI uh, plug-in extension desktop app from, um, oh, what's it... Uh, can't think of it. Oh, Topaz. There we go. <laughs> Topaz. Yep. Yeah. So doing a whole bunch of uh, comparisons and testing on that versus like Adobe Camera Raw and how you can do noise reduction there. So it's keeping me super yeah, busy. And, and noise reduction is, is an interesting thing because every company is going to do it differently and they'll have different sliders and metrics and everything else. It was uh, DxO that had one that only worked with raw files, if I remember correctly, um, that apparently had some secret sauce under the hood um, and it didn't like it might have maybe it was a placebo effect that i perceived it to do better in some cases but it really didn't really up the ante at all um and i think the real advancement is going to be when you have the artificial intelligence that says okay well i'm going to blur the uh, not blur the background, but denoise the background, the out of focus areas more so than the areas with uh, you know existing textures and handle that on uh, on a local level but not uh, not controlled by the user, controlled by our robot overlords. Yep, yeah, and there's there's some basic sliders that are there in the Denoise AI, but that's exactly what it's doing. And and uh, I'll save the results for the the Photo Taco episode, but it's it's uh, interesting stuff that I'm that I'm seeing for sure. Yeah, and in terms of external storage, uh, I mean, I've got a, a big uh, Synology NAS mm -hmm. that I have pretty well all of my data on. I in some cases, if I'm doing like 4K video editing, I might move some stuff local, but um, I upgraded it with a uh, 10 gigabit Ethernet connection to uh, to my computer, right. and it doesn't use that whole capacity. I think it might, uh, you know, top out at you know two 2.5 gigabit in terms of its its, its actual connection. Um, it's I think that the bottleneck there isn't with those devices. I think it's still the fact that that software, whether it's Lightroom or others, uh, there's a bottleneck in how much it can read at a time based on how much processor load there is. Um, and I don't think it's sufficiently multi-threaded enough. It's gotten better. Don't get me wrong. There was a point, what is it, two years ago, where Lightroom was almost unusable with a big <laughs> right, catalog. Yeah. Um, and it had nothing to do with where you were storing your stuff. It was just Lightroom's fault, and it just couldn't handle itself. Um, but I think there's room for improvement. Yeah, the testing I specifically did was, does it matter where your, your catalog is stored versus your photos on external spinning magnetic disks or SSDs? Is it really worth it to spend the money on SSD? It was kind of the question. And it has a small performance benefit, but not enough for it to really be a massive deal. 
Like if you've got the budget, you may as well because you get a little bit yeah. more. But it's not it's not significant. It's not huge. And like you said, Lightroom's not really fully leveraging the uh, the capabilities even on a USB 3.0 device. It's just not it's not taking the max capacity there. Yeah, yeah, and even if you have an, an NVMe SSD right. uh, inside your computer that has all the the throughput you could throw at it with really low latency and everything else, uh, it's it's still going to find bottlenecks elsewhere. Right. Yes, you can try to make every component a little bit better, but you're not going to see, you know, the SSD is twice as fast. Well, your performance improvement might be 5%, maybe less than that, right? Yeah, I I mean, I there, I have some some full numbers out there on Photo Taco Podcast, so if people are interested, they could go go check that out and see see what the, right. the number differences and, are. And I, I, I listen to the Photo Taco Podcast. Uh, I, I, I admit, I don't listen to every episode, <laughs> right. Jeff, I apologize, but I do like to listen, and, uh, and you geek out in your own right, and I love the topics that you cover. Um, you know, it wasn't in our news rundown, but uh, hey, man, like, we've got some, uh, some int- we talked about it in the last episode, I don't know if you listened to it or not, but uh, the NAB show has now been canceled, right. which was coming up at the beginning of April. Uh, and there's other cancellations as well that are coming all across the industry. Uh, Photokina is still on for later in the year. Um, but uh, World Press Photo cancels its 2020 photo contest and award show. Um, the uh, the UK's The Photography Show has been postponed, uh, but still is on course. You know, there's a lot of things changing uh, in the industry right now. I think the large announcements are still going to happen. I mean, we've seen some from Sigma, uh, from uh, conferences that had previously been canceled. They still kind of go ahead with stuff. Uh, what's your feel about this whole um, fear of the coronavirus and uh, and so many other uh, impacts for the industry? I'm sure that if you're a, a wedding photographer in Italy, you're just kind of oh, hanging gosh. up your camera for the year. Yeah, I know, and I don't think it's just limited to photographers. That's what we're talking about because we're photography geeks here. But um, the economy at large, there's <laughs> there's going to be tremendous impacts there. Uh, travel's going way, way down, and all the things that our, our economy uses to stay alive and be healthy, there's real challenges to that right now. So, yeah, across the board, all the industries, and photography is no exception, we're having, we're having some challenges. I believe the um, pharmaceutical industry, especially those companies involved with, uh, you know, antiviral drugs, they're probably doing pretty well uh, at this moment. <laughs> that could <laughs> but be. But beyond that, pretty sure everybody else is hurting. And, you know, you look at these numbers, uh, and I don't mean to put fear in people's uh, uh, mind, but that's kind of what all the, the, the stock market tanking, and this is all based on fear of what the outcome is going right. to be and, and, you know, people working from home and productivity slacking and so on and so forth. Um I remember the numbers from earlier today. I saw something around uh, 66,000 people had gotten uh, COVID-19 and recovered. Uh, that's sort of the, uh, the the best case scenario. And uh, about 43, 4,400 people had gotten the, the virus and, and succumbed to it. Mm-hmm. Now, those numbers to me uh, are far more important than the total number of cases. Because right. open cases can go one way or the other. The closed cases are the ones you really care about because that tells you what the definitive outcome is. And if you add those numbers together, you get about 70,000. And you divide uh, to figure out the percentage of actual uh, fatal cases, it's 4.3%. Yeah. That's bigger than a lot of people are saying. That's right. Uh, and, you know, there's other people saying, well, 50% to 70% of the world's population is going to be affected by this. 
that translates to around 330 million people dead as a result of this virus if we don't have anything that can put a stop to that. It's scary. That's hella scary. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, we just got to keep on going. You know, we can't let our lives grind to a complete halt. We can take all the precautions that we need, but we still have to be active members of society uh, and uh, just make sure that any momentum that we have in our lives doesn't completely get wiped away by this. Yeah, and it's, it's a challenge, too, with the whole, you know, the pandemic mantra of people overreacting or like today, we have so many sources of information and you don't, you know, I see both sides of like some saying, this is nothing. It's not that big a deal. Flu's way worse, blah, blah, blah. And others are like, this is the biggest problem we've faced in a long, long, long time. And and so it's it's really tough to be able to understand, you know, what's the information we should be listening to and what should we ignore? It, it, it's hard. Yeah, and just like uh, typing into Google, the, the U.S., the population of the United States is 327 million people. So it's like the entire country of the United States just being wiped off the map. Now, right. yeah, we're 7.7 .7 billion people, and so I know that number's not there, but it just kind of puts <laughs> it into perspective um, that uh, that this is something that it's affecting every part of our lives, right. uh, photography and otherwise, and uh, stay, stay safe out there, yes. uh, people. Yeah, for sure. But in the process of staying safe, we are also going to go about our lives. We're going to enter our images and photo contests. We are going to uh, continue to explore the photographic arts. And what happens when somebody takes your work? I mean, not literally. I, I get my images stolen all the time. <laughs> right. Copyright infringement is uh, an entirely different discussion. Um, but what if you have a portfolio of work, a series of images, and then somebody goes through your work and tries to dissect exactly where you took every image and takes exactly the same image as close as possible to your own work for every image in a particular series. How would you feel about that, Jeff? Well... For me personally, I might feel flattered at this point, right? Because <laughs> my career as a photographer, I, you know, no one has, is going through my images to do something like that. So that, that might be initial flattery until they did something like it put them into a photo contest. Um, right. Then I would probably be not happy. <laughs> I'd be really so, perturbed. So the, uh, uh, an article from Petapixel, photographer says, uh, world press photo nominee, quote, hijacked uh, her project. And I'll read the, the first couple of paragraphs here, just summarizing things. The prestigious world press photo, um, which, by the way, also in the headlines, World Press Photo cancels its 2020 uh, photo contest. So, <laughs> so this I may mean, not be an issue now. <laughs> it might, might not be an issue now, but still, the principle of the matter, let's discuss. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, competition has been plagued by several controversies in recent years, and it looks like this year's contest is no different. A nominated photographer is being accused of plagiarism uh, by an Iranian photographer who believes her personal project was, quote, hijacked. And so that uh, independent document uh, documentary photographer... Uh, um, Kevin uh, uh, Rostamkani. I'm glad you uh, had to say it. I hate names with so many <laughs> consonants next to each other. Um, uh, brought the controversy to light this week in a length uh, in a lengthy article titled "When Carbon Copies Fade," uh, which is a really fun title. But I, okay, so the the crux of this is what Jeff, because I know that we all are inspired by other people's work, right? For sure. And, and that means we might replicate it uh, in due course to try and figure things out for ourselves. Well, yeah. In fact, I think that's one of the best ways to actually improve your own work is 
uh, you know, finding artists that are producing work that you appreciate, that you really like, and then doing whatever you can to try to figure out what it takes to emulate the same sort of thing. What's the lighting? What kinds of uh, environment are they in? Or, or maybe in this case, it was more of a photojournalistic sort of thing that, that they had going on here. Then it would be like, hey, this is an interesting area where something phenomenal is taking place or something very noteworthy is taking place. And, and this photographer wanted to go and spend some time there and, and, and take it in too. But I do this all the time. I, I find images, uh, I find artists who are doing a really seriously good job in creating images, and I want to analyze it. And so right there, just even like my ability to analyze the photo, like how did they create this image? What what went into, what's the makeup of creating that image? Yeah, not, not just the camera settings, right. but I mean, what, what was the whole impetus of the creation of that image to begin with? Exactly. I mean, what was the meaning, the purpose, the, uh, yeah, it could be the location, it could be um, the, the kind of equipment used, the time of the day. Yeah, there's so many different factors there. Um, so the original series that we're talking about here was done by uh, Somaz Dariani um, that stretched from, uh, based on the numbers here from 2014 to uh, to 2017. And a uh, another photographer, um, uh, Maximilian Mann, uh, pretty well through 2018 and 2019, uh, went through every image in the series, often going to identical locations uh, and with near identical framing as best as they possibly can. Some of them are just absolutely uncanny, yep. like the same room. Uh, I don't know how you track down that exact same room, but you know, well, your sleuthing has proved successful in recreating that image. Um, you can't, you can't call it yours. I don't think at that point, I, I, I think that there's a distinction. You know, if you were to go to, uh, any waterfall, beautiful location that has, you know, the, the, the nice little sort of velvet rope in front of you that you stand there and you snap your own version of, you know, horseshoe bend or whatever right, it is, right. you, you know, that that's not going to be a unique image, but you also know that you're not copying one person. You're copying like a hundred million other people <laughs> right, when you right. create that photo. It's uh, it, it's not unique to any one individual. But when you take one specific photographer and their entire body of work and try to replicate it, I think that crosses a line. Yeah, and, and bringing some originality, uh, you know, the, the photographer, the second photographer who kind of took over this whole project from her, uh, from the original photographer, they they uh, they definitely went to the place. Like, they, they took that part into doing this. They went and, and spent some time there. It wasn't years of time like the original photographer. It was just a few weeks, but they did well, go. because the original photographer did all the legwork. Yeah. Who knows what images were not part of the series. It's so much easier to know exactly where the good photo is going to be taken and walk right up to that spot. Right, right. And, and he said, the, the second photographer did say, well, I, I actually took, you know, thousands of images while I was there. But the problem is, he the ones that he selected <laughs> to put into the contest are ones that are prominent in the first, the original photographer's portfolio, the, the images that they've shared. And so, yeah, that now seems like it crosses a line to me. Like, this is no longer original ideas here. You're not just, like, going and, and enjoying the same experience and a, a photojournalistic sort of thing that you're trying to, to, to bring here. You're not bringing your own creativity and ideas to this. You're copying. 
The problem is when you have a photo contest, whether it be World Press Photo or anybody else, um, it's easy if you wanted to go through the extra step to do a reverse image search to see if the image actually owns to the person uh, uh, is owned by the person that's submitting it. Right? You can see where else it shows up online and who it might be attributed uh, attributed to, but. That kind of searching is not so good yet that it will find. Um, I, I, do, do I call it derivative works? I mean, yeah, that, that, that's a right. legal term that I'm not sure technically applies here, uh, but definitely inspired by extremely similar works. Right, and uh, and so it won't find those. You you wouldn't like it would appear as if it's a legitimate uh, image unless you knew the original photographer or the original photographer spotted uh, an image that was so eerily uh, eerily similar to their own, and so AI might get there to the point where these things can be vetted better. But is this something that we just have to voice in the court of public opinion and do public shaming to possibly uh, change this trend? Yeah, it seems like policing it is is such a challenge. It's hard for someone who's running a contest like this to have a, a reasonable chance at it. And so, yeah, it, I, it seems like the court of public opinion is the place this has to end up. And then everyone looks bad. You know, the, the artist that, that is maybe winning the contest, the contest, the organizers look bad. It's a real challenge. I, it makes me never want to run a contest. <laughs> yeah, and the original photographer gets pretty well nothing yeah. for voicing their opinion, right, right? right? It's not like they immediately get substituted as the winner of the contest. I don't think that's ever happened. Uh, they just, uh, they might get a rallying cry behind them, maybe some social media followers as a result, but definitely a bad taste in their mouth and everybody's as a right. result of this kind of behavior. Um, now, it's funny because this has probably been happening for many, many decades. Oh, yeah. Right? Especially before the internet era, how easy would it have been um, to find the work of your fellow photographer at a camera club, replicate their image, and win a photo contest from any big company, and nobody would know that it wasn't your original work or an entire original series? Um, when I enter uh, the uh, PPOC, the uh, Professional Photographers of Canada uh, Image Salon, which I've done a number of times, um, one of the stipulations, one of the points in there is that you cannot have created the image under the mentorship of somebody else, which means you couldn't have created it on a photography workshop or as a part of a lesson that you were learning, etc. Um, it had to be your own independent creative work. Um, and I wish all contests had those clauses uh, because it would allow the photographer, the original photographer, to immediately contact the contest and say, hey, look at all of this work. It's not original work. It, uh, it's invalidated based on this clause in your, uh, your terms and uh, you know, pitch it out, uh, disqualify it. And yeah, maybe they have that. I haven't actually looked through their terms and conditions on this particular contest, uh, but it's not universal. Many of the contests I've looked at do not have such clauses. Yeah, and, and even if they do, uh, it's still up to the person entering the contest to be following. The policing part of it is, is now the ch is still a challenge. How are you going to yep. know for sure that everyone who's entered this, that is actually their own original work? Right. Well, it's a moot point because the, the entire contest has been canceled. <laughs> but uh, maybe that was just their escape to say, we don't want to deal with this controversy. We're coming up with an excuse because uh, I don't know of any other photo contests 
per se, that have been canceled. Yes, your award show could be done digitally, but if you just want to get out of the entire contest whatsoever, um, then, hey, they've found the reason to avoid any further controversy this year, and let's hope for better things yeah, next. Um, furthering on to controversy, uh, reported by DP Review, Several Canon 1DX Mark III users are reporting issues with the optical uh, viewfinder freezing during burst mode. Now, I don't usually hear about an optical viewfinder freezing. I I think (laughs) the terminology here is a little bit odd. Uh, It's maybe that the mirror gets locked in a position where you cannot see through it. Right. Um, And uh, and so I'll... I'll, I'll leave you to start this one because I know that you've done a little bit of digging into this and some potential reasons that this might be caused by Jeff. So it, it, there's not any uh, pure evidence here yet. We have a, a video of someone that showed it. It was actually kind of amazing. I thought that they could even get the viewfinder to be seen well in the in the video. And so it shows definitely like they're they're holding down the shutter button. The it's clicking away. The shutter's going, and then it just completely blacks out. Like you said, I think the mirror is is probably open. It's probably stuck open, so the the light can't be directed back up to the viewfinder. And uh, and it looks like the camera's like restarting. <laughs> it's kind of starting over, potentially, and uh, and then again starts take to take some frames again because they still have the shutter button pressed down. So. Um, not a ton of clues there of exactly what's going to go on. Potentially, uh, I do know they, they've made some pretty significant changes in the 1DX Mark III with regard to uh, autofocus, at least, and, uh, and how that's working even with the viewfinder. And I find this kind of fascinating because it seems like this kind of, it, it, it's the combination of potentially some mirrorless type technology that maybe they learned from the EOSR system, Something like that, but they they now have it. You know, I'll read directly out of like the the spec sheet for the camera, the One DX Mark III. It says new AF power for viewfinder shooting, live view and video through the finder. A totally new 191 point AF system delivers not just speed but new AF tracking with face detection, new head detection technology supported by deep learning and ability to read subject, shape, and color. The EOS 1DX Mark III can follow subjects across the 191-point AF array like no other EOS DSLR before it. So big changes. It sounds really cool. Sounds like it'd be yeah, awesome. Yeah, well, it, it sounds, uh, well, I mean, I don't want to say revolutionary, but definitely a step up from what we had before. Um and maybe it's just the new tech that they're kind of uh, you know putting in here that's going to be the cause of it. Maybe. I would imagine, though, that that would have been completely smoothed out in uh, quality assurance testing and, and the development process where an issue like this, if, if one person out of 100, like 1% of the users encounter that, um, that would have shown up in, in pre-production models. That, that would have been an issue that, that would have been probably dealt with. It seems like a bigger bug. And a bug, let, let's call it that. It yeah. seems like this is a software thing that will be fixed with an update. It, it, it doesn't give any indications beyond that. Right. But if they weren't encountering this in their quality assurance and testing phases, um, it leads me to think of one other possible culprit, and that would have to be the memory card. 
Um, I'm not sure many people remember, but when the CFast memory uh, memory cards first came out, um, there was some incompatibilities. And I believe possibly even with the CFast cards that were bundled with the 1DX Mark II, which was one of the first Canon cameras to use that format. Um, And the cards just didn't follow the communication protocol to the letter. And in some cases, um, it would end up with a corrupted images or a corrupted memory card. And rather than recalling those memory cards, uh, the simpler solution, because people might still hold on to them and then you don't want to have this kind of negative fallout continuing on for a long time, the camera would detect what kind of card was in it and the firmware would modify its communication protocol to now work properly with cards that weren't following the letter of that protocol properly. Um, And so that was with CFast, and that was with the 1DX Mark II, and there was an issue with memory cards in their previous installment in the series. This new camera from Canon is the first 1D uh, series body to use CF Express cards. And they're just now coming onto the market from about every manufacturer separately. And who's to say that there's not a communication issue with these new cards? That could be a possibility that they couldn't have tested for. Um, and from the uh, the explanation, it kind of looks like the the, uh, the writing light, the little red light on the back of your camera that says that it's writing to the memory card. People have to wait until that goes off before things kind of reset themselves and the camera comes back to life, which kind of lends me to think that it's a memory card issue. Um, Either way, not good for Canon to have these kinds of issues on another flagship camera like they did with the 1DX Mark II. Will they get over it? Absolutely. This seems (laughs) like you'll have a firmware (laughs) update within the next week and we're all going to move on from this. Um, But even the, the the best laid plans here, you know, the, the best possible camera and, you know, these flagship cameras aren't owned by everybody. They're a halo camera. Right. You know, it, it's like nobody goes out and buys a Ford GT. They make them. They make them to elevate the entire brand overall. And yes, some people do own them and there's a specific purpose for that. And to have a flagship camera that elevates the brand is a very useful thing. But when it has even the tiniest flaw everybody jumps on it as they should because it should be flawless yep i agree it it canon's not likely to have any trouble with this as long as they get it fixed and fixed soon especially before the olympics <laughs> they gotta get well, this that might be out. pushed back or who knows what else oh that's true <laughs> that's yeah. true back to the coronavirus or covid19 yeah yeah so it, uh, and you know i think your theory about the memory cards could have more uh more possible explanation for this again because as i was looking at this story I don't remember now exactly where I saw it. I went through a lot of articles as I was looking at it. But the, it seemed like uh, we had some others saying they had early reviews of the camera and saw similar behaviors. And now that they have the production model of the camera, they're no longer seeing this same issue. And that could be a difference in memory cards that are in there. It seems like if it was the autofocus system, there'd be more consistency with the problem. I, I would imagine that, well, especially because uh, if you can replicate it on video, if you can recreate that problem where the autofocus system is not really engaged on a dynamic right, subject right. that's happening randomly and, and chaotically that would be very hard to replicate, you'd never be able to capture the flaw uh, in action. But because you can, it means that there's something uh, repeatable about it. And that means that it's probably a culprit that is uh, a little bit more... Um, uh, mechanical, like the memory card or uh, the protocols or something like that, rather than the AI confluence of ideas that are floating around in our cameras these <laughs> right, days that right. randomly lands on the wrong idea and says, oops, I shouldn't have gone there. Yep. Yeah, I agree. Yep. 
All right. Well, let's uh, carry on to the next story. I'm glad that there is still some uh, interesting camera news to come out of the industry. Leica has finally released the S3. This is reported by Petapixel, a 64-megapixel medium-format DSLR with 4K video. Um, And so this has been a long time coming. The S3 was announced quite a while ago, um, and it sports a 3x2 aspect ratio, um, 30x45mm Leica Pro Pro Format CMOS sensor with an ISO sensitivity range on the base level of 100 all the way up to uh, 50,000, rather. And they're reporting, it hasn't been tested yet uh, independently, a 15-stop dynamic range, which is huge, Um, uh, and 64 megapixels worth of resolution. That is a, they claim, a 71% uh, bump over the 37.5 megapixels of the Leica S2. So, huge improvements. Now, this is not what a sports photographer is going to use. It's only going to shoot at three frames per second, and it can only take six photos before its buffer fills. So we're talking fashion photography, landscape photography, uh, commercial photography purposes, artwork reproduction, or whatever else you can think of uh, in a slightly more static environment. It's a flapping mirror camera, Jeff. Are, are we done with these flapping mirror cameras at this point? Is this, is this the, you know, the 1DX Mark III is the swan song for uh, Canon in this area. Is this the same for Leica? And did it come too late? So... Uh... I don't know. I'm, I'm torn on this. I am personally still very entrenched in the DSLR world, the flapping camera cameras, mainly though, because I've had my camera for many years now. And as new bodies come out, there hasn't been anything so compelling to make me invest in the new body. And so I've just stayed put. It's doing what I need. I'm able to, you know, create the images that I want to create and there hasn't been any need for me to to upgrade that body, um, so I, I do. There's some things I would love to try out from the mirrorless world. Uh, there are definitely some advantages. You know that electronic viewfinder. Is it over for it? I don't know. There's there's so many. I think kind of like me, but, but then again, they're probably not going to buy this body. Well, either, it, it, right? it's it's not over for you because you're using the camera that you already have. Right, right. If you were to go out today and say, you know, Let's my camera now. is 15 years old. I need a new one. Are, are you going to invest in another EF mount camera, or are you going to jump into the mirrorless market from any brand? Yeah. Right? Okay. So for sure, in the Canon line, no, because Canon's been pretty clear. I mean, not exactly saying it but they've been clear with where they've been spending their research and development and what's been announced is coming that they're done with the mirrored cameras they're they're going to mirrorless they're all in on that and they're moving there so of course that wouldn't make any sense now to uh to make heavy investment and start out in the mirrored world you'd you'd want to go mirrorless um but i don't know i it could be compelling things. They, they tried in the 1DX Mark III to put in some compelling stuff there that uh, that really makes it so that that's a, a camera body if you have the 1DX Mark II that you would be very interested in and keeping that up. What do you think about this one with the, the S3? Is this a meaningful, besides the resolution updates, is, is this a, a meaningful thing? I, I think that it is. Um, however, I think that Leica's medium format uh, endeavor... Uh, with this existing mount, I think we'll end with this camera um, because yeah, yeah, you can adapt all the lenses, I'm sure, uh, to a, a mirrorless mount. But the only reason why this is coming out is because it's been in development for a long time. 
and if, if something was to be created today or yesterday based on the same concept, you would definitely want to um, echo the same mirrorless sentiment that you're seeing from companies like Fuji. Uh, now, if you want to get a 100 or even 150 megapixel uh, camera from phase one, um, the, the resolution when you go to medium format can be a lot higher than 64 megapixels as well. I'm not saying you need it uh, because, I mean, 64 megapixels is more than I think just about anybody needs at this point, unless <laughs> right. you have some very specific use cases. <laughs> However, you know, if you compare this, uh, the, the pixel size, it's, it's a larger sensor. Uh, to the Sony a7R4, which packs a comparable number of megapixels, 60 versus uh, 64. Um, the pixels are smaller on the Sony camera body. Bigger pixels I've always found to be better. Absolutely. Uh, you know, you have more light collecting ability and lower noise floors and, and higher dynamic range when you have bigger pixels. And that's always a rolling target. It's not going to be the same from one generation of camera to the next. I get that. Um, but this one seems like it's lagging behind. It even has a compact flash card slot. I think it might be one of the last cameras ever released with a CF card slot. And so that just shows me how long this has been in development, that they didn't choose to replace that with CFast or XQD or CF Express or something. Yeah, it's got an uh, SDXC card, sure. I mean, that's been standard for a while. Um, but that just shows the legacy from its design standpoint. And you can't have design pipelines this long anymore and stay relevant. Yeah. Yeah, that you're probably exactly right there. It, it, they probably thought, Hey, if we're going to try to get this out the door at all, it has to be now. <laughs> we got to go yeah. with this and get it out the go. door, try and to make whatever we can off of $19,000. It's gosh. not a cheap piece of kit. Um, and so, yeah, to, to, to restart this from scratch, you'd have to redo the lens mount around a mirrorless platform and come up with a new uh, format unless you want to adopt somebody else's, which Leica never does. They always come up with their own mounts. Uh, and they get a cult following, and they will probably sell enough to make this profitable to the Leica fans out there that have the S2 or just want to throw the largest dollar value at a problem uh, that doesn't necessarily equate to the best solution. Um, I might get some Leica hate mail for that. I love Leica lenses. In fact, some of my favorite lenses are made by this company. My most expensive lens is a Leica lens from 1954. Um, but I think this is going to be the end of, of an era. Um, uh, from all classes. I mean, you see the D6, the uh, 1DX Mark III, this right, Leica S3. Right. Um, it's over. Um, the, you know, put a pin in it. It's done. Uh, we are ready to move on uh, to the uh, the wonderful mirrorless world. And in uh, some, I, I like I like some of the fundamentals of this camera. The top dial, or not dial, but uh, uh, LCD screen mirrors what I have on the S1H, which is an inverted uh, color display. It's black with the letters and stuff that are white, which just feels classy. And it's big, and it's no longer just a standard, like, old alarm clock style of LCD display with everything kind of flashing eights when it starts, and then it kind of lights up exactly what cell is required. It's, it's an actual pixel display. Um, so they've done a lot of good things, but Will it find its place? I think it won't. And uh, and there we go. Yeah, I don't think it will either. This is more of a status symbol sort of camera. <laughs> well, as Leica has always made, especially right. with their M-series rangefinder cameras, they've always had that allure. There were good cameras, don't get me wrong. Sure. It's the photographer that makes great photos, and you choose the tool that you want. Um, but the price point was never to the same value proposition as other brands. Right. Leica never played to the value proposition. That's their shtick. Um 
And so that continues with that camera body. And uh, good luck to anybody that buys one. Uh, you know, it's your photographic skill that will set you apart from the others, not the red dot on the front of the camera. That's right. All right. Uh, let's talk about adapters because we're kind of in the adapter market right now anybody that's jumped into the mirrorless world uh, or maybe you've got vintage lenses too there is no better era in photography to adapt one lens from one brand to uh, a, a completely different brand uh, i've got a bunch of ef glass from canon that i've adapted to, uh, adapted to my l mount cameras uh, and they work wonderfully but uh, this story from f-stopper says the holy grail of adapters comes to the Fujifilm X-Mount. So what is this adapter all about here, Jeff? Yeah, so... It's a it's a it's a good idea. Like you, you have to you have to provide the adapters so that you can make your camera body something that uh, that people are going to be able to go to. the The investment to change over systems when you when you do and you buy a new body, it can be such a big stumbling block. Then that you you have to do that. You have to provide a way for them to be able to adapt their current glass to the new body for some time you've got to be able to get there and for the most part my own experience with adapters has been pretty poor at least with regard to autofocus it just yeah it's never it's never going to go your way right Uh, right. even if the adapter is made by the first party manufacturer like if you take an ef lens and throw it on an eos r body yes the adapters are great and i love the fact that they have some with little filter drop-ins that might give you some added functionality um but it's it it's not going to be as good as a lens natively designed for that mount. It might be close. Uh, it might be very, very far from good as well. It's kind of a, a mixed bag, and you don't know what you're going to get. Right. So so I see why they have to do it. Absolutely have to provide it. Um, and, and the challenge with this specific one, though, is the price point. That price point is... is way too much like the reason to provide these adapters is to help people get to your body and still use their same glass because the stumbling block is i don't want to have to buy put out a lot of money and buy new lenses now you were asking for 350 dollars for that adapter that's that's too high here's the magic in this adapter though because this adapter takes uh leica m mount lenses which were made by leica and a lot of other manufacturers it kind of was a standard for a significant amount of time um those are rangefinder lenses they're inherently uh manual focus optics Uh so you're adding autofocus to a lens that never before had autofocus and so, I mean, you could imagine some Rube Goldberg machine of arms and levers and things that kind of control. No, it doesn't do any of that. Um, what it does is because of the mirrorless mounts have a shorter flange distance, you can build an adapter that at its closest point has infinity focus. And then it effectively is like a variable extension tube right. that will shift the camera's focus forward and backward from the sensor uh, that will shift then the uh, the focal plane closer or further away. Uh, and that's kind of a novel idea, right? You know, to, to have that that would allow you to potentially focus even closer than a lens was originally designed to do. Uh, and because of that shorter flange distance, still maintain infinity focus on the other side. The problem with this whole idea is 
even in the best case scenario, there's like computational elements involved in figuring out exactly where this focus is going to fall. And with a third party accessory on a Fuji camera with another third party lens and no consistency amongst that, it's going to be the opposite of fast. It's oh, going yeah. to be the slowest autofocus I could imagine. I haven't used this, so I'm kind of speaking out of my butt here. I, I don't know exactly what this is going to do in terms of performance, but it just doesn't stack up really nicely in terms of the potential. Um, and at that point, if you've got a lens that you can manually focus relatively cl- quickly with your hand, a lens that you've that you already <laughs> own, and that you, you knew have it was used manual focus through the entire lifetime of that lens that you have owned manually focusing. Right. Why can you not continue to do that? Yeah. It, so and and then there's it, like if you're right about how it's, it's moving it back and forth, it's like physical motors now that are going to have to do that. And they even said there's a weight limit. Now there's a big like chunk on the bottom of this uh, adapter ring that has a mo- it's got to have a motor right. in it somewhere. And there's a weight limit. And there's boy, that sounds to me like something that could wear out in a hurry. If it's physically moving the lens back and forth, uh, the durability of it, then it it seems like a challenge. The speed of it and then the cost of it, boy. Yeah, you need an adapter so you can put on those lenses and have them work. But the whole need to add autofocus to it, that's not usually one of the critical features that anyone needs as they're adapting these lenses. They they just need it to be able to connect to the camera. Well, and if it's a manual lens, then you'll have manual aperture controls yeah, and other sure. things that are at your disposal just inherent to the technology from yesteryear. Um, so when we see this, 350 bucks, it's not cheap. But you know, if you are a fan of those vintage lenses, of which I own quite a few, right. some that I've even taken apart and put back together in curious ways because you could just have some fun with them, um, it could be useful to some. But especially if you've got focus peaking on modern cameras, uh, manual focus becomes so much easier. Uh, you can you can veritably nail it where with an electronic viewfinder and focus peaking on a vintage lens without an adapter like this, I think you might be better off without it. Photodiox, though, I got to give them credit for just making almost every adapter under the sun. It's true. Um, and if you want to adapt vintage lenses to your camera, chances are it's a company like them that is making those adapters. And maybe it's just machined aluminum on one side to the other that just has the proper con- connectivity. Uh, and that's great. Maybe I should complain to Photodiox to say, hey, make me some extension tubes for the L-mount, please, because that's one of the only things I'm missing in terms of adapters or accessories right now. And I'd buy a bunch of them in a heartbeat. And I am glad to see Photodiox continuing to push the envelope and, and thinking... Uh, as much about this as they possibly can. I, I, I love any kind of engineering research sort of thing that's happening in the photography world to try to get it to be better so that we can we can have the, the best solutions we possibly can. Just don't think this one makes a whole lot of sense in this case. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it says it's ideal for 50 millimeter and wider focal lengths because, yeah, if it's uh, if it's any longer than that, it doesn't have enough of a range. <laughs> if you put a 100 millimeter lens on this, the amount of focus shift of the lens to the camera body would probably exceed the range of the adapter's movement capabilities. And so it's limited not only in weight, but in focal length yeah. and a lot of other factors as well. So... 
Um, but anyhow, check it out if you are uh, keen on getting some old glass to do some new tricks. At least it'll do it slowly. It'll do it, but it won't be fast. <laughs> right. All right. Uh, let's get into our picks of the week. Uh, why don't you start us off with this one, Jeff? This sounds like something incredibly useful. You've given me a little teaser on it. Yeah. So uh, this is something I, I did as part of my testing. I mentioned at the top of the show that I, I did a whole lot of testing with external storage and connecting uh, magnetic drives and SSD drives. And that meant I had to do a lot of performance testing of the the connection and the kind of the, the maximum throughput. And then to discover Lightroom barely even used it was, was fun. But uh, as part of that, then I, I was doing some testing on both Mac and PC. And my Mac has only got USB-C ports. There's no USB-A ports, the older style USB 3.0 kind of ports. And so uh, to connect some of this storage that was USB 3.0 magnetic spinning disk storage, I needed an adapter. So I tried a few. I was worried in getting just one that there might be performance differences with the adapters too. So I decided to go on Amazon and, and kind of buy the the gamut of all of the less expensive end sort of adapters and kind of see what's going on there. And it's like sub $20. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And uh, and this one happens to be both inexpensive and not limit performance at all. It, it allowed a USB 3.0 drive to function at full capacity uh, compared with like a native USB 3.0 port on, on a PC that I was using. So this is the Nanda USB-C to USB 3.0 adapter. It's only 10 bucks. And it's, it's also small, which is another big advantage. Um, you could just stick this on the end of your USB cable that's connected to your drive and just leave it there if you're using a USB-C yeah, there's no cord. device. No cord. You just stick it right on the end. It's a very, very tiny little thing. And, uh, and then it's going to make it totally USB-C compatible. And it's great. Now, uh, if you have that up in front of you, do you spot the product photography flaw on the images oh, on I, Amazon? I don't have it up in front of me. What, what is it? Okay, well, I mean, it, it, it is a great, uh, if it's a photo, uh, it's a good photo. If it's a render, it's fine. But there's there's a little white spot that's meant to look like a specular reflection off of the side on a completely matte surface that is obviously poorly photoshopped into the image. And it's just driving me nuts looking at well, it. Well, that actually is the light, meaning that there's a connection going through from the drive. Oh, to the, it's okay. Like a, so that is an actual functional light. It is. I, I, color me incorrect. It just looks like a flaw. <laughs> Yep. All right. Says the person that actually has one, you've got the right. <laughs> um, so my pick is uh, we were talking about CF Express cards earlier. And if you have a camera that previously had compatibility with XQD memory cards, which are fast, you know, they're much faster than compact flash cards, um, much in the same way as uh, computer SSDs had the ability to use a different protocol to vastly speed them up, the NVMe protocol. Um Camera memory cards have gone the same way. And so uh, I've got in my S1R, I have a brand new release from Panasonic. There's a number of people that sell CF Express cards. Don't you know get completely caught up on the brand. But it was a Panasonic camera. I wanted to get a Panasonic uh, memory card again because there could be some potential compatibility issues, but there's nothing that I've encountered so far. 
And it's functionally identical on the surface to an XQD memory card, but it uses a different communication protocol and probably a different kind of controller inside that dramatically increases the speed. We're talking about a write speed of 1,000 megabytes per second and a read speed of, uh, of 1,000, oh, I'll call it 1.7 gigabytes a second uh, read speed off of this memory card. And, uh, you know, it's... These cards aren't cheap per se. Uh, they're uh, in Canadian dollars. I'm looking at CameraCanada.com uh, here. Just a quick Google search found it for 350 bucks Canadian. The Canadian dollar is not doing as good as the U.S. dollar right now, <laughs> and that's a lot to spend on a memory card in, yes. in any context. But when I'm shooting rapid fire bursts with a 47 megapixel camera, you're going to hit a buffer. Because data can't get offloaded to that memory card fast enough. And so if you now have a much faster memory card, it might not be able to communicate at the full speed that the card is capable of. There's going to be a bottleneck somewhere, but that's alleviated quite a bit. And I was shooting some snowflakes. I was doing a test with this card the other day. And uh, my normal uh, my normal shooting uh, with a, a flash and uh, uh, you know aperture control with a lens is not going to be quite at the highest frame rate of the camera, but uh, I was able to get probably around forty to fifty percent additional images on a single burst than compared to a very fast XQD memory card. Wow. So that bottleneck is greatly alleviated. And if you want to just not miss the shot and pay a little bit extra, it's like a it's like a camera upgrade. Uh, by getting a faster class of memory card. So there you have it. That's incredible. That is one of the areas where that would convince me to upgrade my body. Uh, yeah. frames, frames per second is one of the critical things. I, I do a lot of, of sports shooting. So frames per second is a big deal. And that is something that, that would make me upgrade. If you want to just ride that shutter button and just hold it down. I mean, when I was shooting with the, the S1 with an XQD card, it pretty well with a fast one would never fill the buffer. Wow. Uh, but that's 24 megapixels versus 47. And as soon as you, you brought that up, and yeah, it doesn't shoot quite as fast, but if I were to uh, if I were to load that card into the camera, uh, and I've got a, um, a Canon uh, MPE 65mm lens on my camera right now that has the electrical contacts taped over because I just want to keep it at wide open, and when it's not communicating it actually fires faster. Um, <laughs> right. And if I were to turn that on and just fire that away... Now that's on electronic shutter. I'm going to change that so that we could actually maybe hear the uh, the shutter mechanism here. Um, but uh, I was doing some microscope stuff, which required that the other day. Um, but I don't know if we can even hear that on the... Not a lot different, but I can hear it. Going and going and going. And, you know, to me... Um, I don't miss the shot. And if there's a tool that costs me $350, um, I would much rather buy a faster memory card than that automatic lens adapter. If that's where your money's going, uh, then this is a better a better use of it. Sure. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So, uh, Jeff, as we end up at the end of this episode, it's been great to have you on. Where can people find you, your illustrious podcast, and your photographic works? All right. So, phototacopodcast.com is where you go to uh, to find out about that if you're interested in well, if you're interested in Photo Geek Weekly, you're probably going to be interested in Photo Taco because I, I geek out about stuff. Mine's a little different. Mine, my stuff tends to trend more on the computer side of things, the post-processing aspects, testing out a lot of stuff there. But I definitely go into a lot of techniques and tricks. And, and I probably have more of a beginner's audience than you do on the people that are kind of at the start of their photography journey and offering a bunch of help as they're running into... Uh, issues with uh, vocabulary and what does this mean and what are they talking about? And, uh, you know, 
preparation so that they can understand what you're saying in Photo Geek Weekly <laughs> as, as over right. there. Uh, and then my... Well, and, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, and, and I've, even as a, as a seasoned expert in certain areas, am a novice in others. And so if you're talking about something that I might not have perfect experience with, as I don't think anybody does, right. then it's valuable even to people that think they're well along that road. Yep. Yeah, it's really fun. I spend a lot of time as I in each episode. I, I really spend probably between eighty and one hundred and twenty hours of research, uh, making myself into an expert on the topic. And it usually comes from questions that I got. Someone saying, "I don't understand this thing. Can you tell me about it?" And and while I could say, "Well, here's my understanding and and maybe my basic experience with it," that's not good enough for me. I go through and I want to test to make sure I really understand what it is that's going on and how to how to get the most out of your camera, most out of the software, all of that sort of thing. Awesome. Uh, and where can people find your work? Yeah, so that's over at jsharmanphotos.com. Jeff, um, and then my wife's name is Susie, and she, she shoots with me too. So jsharmanphotos.com. Wonderful. And with the links to that will be in the show notes, as will be the links to all of the shows. And I encourage people to check out the uh, those links because, you know, when we talked about in our first story about the photos and their similarity, really get a sense for it by looking at them yourself um, and take a look at all of the stuff that we've talked about. Voice your opinions in the comments or just send me some email feedback. It's always very well received. Thank you again for listening to another episode of Photo Geek Weekly. And now it's time to get out and shoot. <laughs>